Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast, chatting with patients, healthcare, industry and research professionals about creating personalized medicines for each and every one of us. Together, we head to the holy grail, mainstream precision medicine. Here's your host, Steve Coldicott. Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast, a new novel concept today. I'm delighted to announce You'll, you'll notice um, if you're watching us that, there, that there's three of us on the screen to begin with um, because we're now starting our new monthly feature of having a guest host. So, Tori Robinson, welcome, first of all. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Tori, I, I'll let you do the intros later, but Tori is um, a fellow podcaster, produces a, a brilliant podcast under the banner of Epilepsy Sparks. Um, and she's here today with our guest, actual guest, um, Dave Rose. Um, so I'm going to leave the two of you to it. And uh, thank you very much for joining us. Lovely to have you here, Dave. David Rose, uh, people who, who haven't come across yet, check him out online. Fabulous chap. Um, could you give us a little overview of who you are, what you do? What, what is the unique David Rose? <laughs> Yeah, sure. So, um, so my name is David Rose. Uh, I've got a really ultra rare disease called occipital horn syndrome. Uh, only person in the UK, as far as I know. Um, there might be some others that have been misdiagnosed, but apparently I'm the only one. Uh, there's an estimated 20 globally. Um, I found seven or eight people through social media, which has been an interesting uh, viewpoint, I guess. Um, I've been kind of always been poorly my whole life but didn't get this new diagnosis until I was 26 so I'm 33 now so it's you know seven years on um, I've been working in the rare disease space for a while now so I've been working for Rare Revolution magazine um, for those of you who don't know it's a, a rare disease publication based in the UK um, I've been working for them for four years and I've been doing some volunteering for Great Ormond Street Hospital which is a really famous pediatric hospital based in London um, I wanted to give something back at that point and you know I spent a lot of time there growing up and as a teenager and I thought you know I didn't have any money to give or anything but I thought I can give my time so I became involved in uh, various panels and groups and things and that kind of really led me to actually doing all the you know the public speaking that I now do uh, talking about my rare disease because I started off doing some talks for them for their kind of big charity events where big banks and things would use them for their charity and then they wanted like an ex-patient to come and talk to them about you know, what, what services do you use at the hospital and some of your experiences and, you know, what you're doing now and, you know, how you're educating people about your different health conditions. So you know, that's kind of where it all started. And then now it's led to, you know, to doing lots of different talks all over the place and um, a couple of campaigns with pharma companies. But um, I, I guess I kind of fall into this box where, because it is so ultra rare, there isn't really, you know, there's no group of people, there's no patient group, there's no research, there's no charities there's no sort of real interest in me. I'm, I'm seeing as a novelty, but there's no interest, if that makes sense. <laughs> your USP is your, is your uh, multi-syllabled yeah. uh, diagnosis. So just to tell us a bit about this, this what was it, occipital horn syndrome. What does that even mean? You know, what, what are the symptoms of this disease? Yeah, so um, it's very similar to something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is another rare disease. But um, that's what I was originally diagnosed with when I was three, so 30 years ago. Um, that is, it's still a rare disease, but there's different subtypes of that. Um, and some of the more common ones are really, you know, especially in the UK and probably a little bit uh, into North America is becoming a lot more, you know, much more recognised in the sort of medical industry now, and um, still rare, but it's you know thousands more people getting diagnosed with it than you know 30 years ago. When I was told that I had 
Ellis Danlos, it was really unusual. Whereas now, like it's you know, I've met dozens, hundreds of people with it. It's it's you know, both in my work capacity and even out of that, where just friends and friends. I know some of the people have got it now. Like it's really becoming so much better diagnosed, which is good. So it's very similar to that. So essentially, it's it's kind of a mix. It is a it's a connective tissue disorder. So that's what most people recognise Ellis Danlos as. So it's like dislocations, um, sort of different musculoskeletal uh, setup, um, kind of prone to breaking things, tend to be fragile, fragile skin. Um, but probably more important, it's the internal problems that people with EDS or even what I have is, it's very similar. So problems with your bladder, kidney, heart, bowel, liver, it's kind of pretty much everything um, internally. The joints are painful, but really the, the sort of danger, I guess, comes from the internal organs. And that's really what um, has put me in hospital so many times and had you know hundreds of operations and procedures and things over the years so um, it's connective tissue in in one way um, but it's also a copper deficiency as well that's that's the kind of slight difference so on one hand it's similar to Ellos Danlos syndrome but it's also considered um, a mild version of something called Menkes disease which is another rare disease. I think Ellos Danlos syndrome is Although rare, it's uh, more familiar. The name of it is more familiar to a lot of people. Um, and you say it's it's a more severe type, um, or, or very similar, but much more severe than Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, and I know that lots of people say, "Oh, well, I'm hypermobile, and therefore I totally know what it's like." Now, I'm we've spoken about this before. I'm hypermobile. But I don't have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, although depending on the paper you read, the thing is some people will say that one does, but it's it's hypermobility. So can you just confirm for everybody that it's it's pretty, it's kind of like severe, yeah. what you've, in my understanding, compared to somebody who is hypermobile? Yeah, it, it definitely overlaps a lot with Ehlers-Danlos and it used to be considered like one of the old subtypes. So similar sort of time to my, di- my actual diagnosis through the genetics testing, um, maybe sort of seven or eight years ago, I think Ellos Danlos um, collectively, like with all the different groups and researchers, changed the subtypes. So there were more of them and they've uh, removed some of the subtypes and that, and they became their own thing. So that's essentially why occipital horn syndrome is its own thing. It used to be considered, I think, Ellos Danlos type 9, I think it was called, or 11, uh, whereas now it's not recognised as an Ellos Danlos, but it's still kind of very much connected to it. And how does precision medicine benefit you well so I've, I've had genetics testing so that's probably like the closest your mom and dad don't have this right the the gene itself is called atp7a so uh, atp7a is my one and then atp7b is something called wilson syndrome so really essentially like i have a deficiency of copper wilson syndrome is a surplus of copper so it's in the same kind of family as that um wilson's isn't really like Ehlers Danlos, as far as I know, it's just a coincidence, but um, it just happens to be another rare disease or kind of relatively rare disease. Um, but yes, yeah, so I had the genetics testing when I was 24, and then it took about three years to kind of come up with the answers. Um, there's a few different kind of uh, rare diseases they were kind of looking for to start with. I didn't have like the whole genome sequencing, it was just they kind of identified a few different things it could have been. Um, and then a few things kind of, you know, came back negative, but I got the actual answer after about three years. So I think it's tends to be about four years is that on average to get a diagnosis. So it's kind of similar, I guess. Some people say seven, but I guess, yeah, it, it depends. And and also depends a lot upon access, right, to either whole exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing. Mm-hmm. Um, did you find that um, influenced how long it took you for you to get an accurate di- diagnosis? Even though I kind of feel a bit disgruntled with my, <laughs> with my condition sometimes, I think to flip it around the other way, um, you know, 
people talk about like postcode lotteries and where you live, uh, like where you live, you know, that makes a big difference. And obviously, for those of you who don't know the UK that well, like the southeast is sort of generally considered the best place to be for a patient because it's near London, it's near Cambridge, Oxford, it's where all the big kind of research hospitals and centres are. So I was very lucky that I was brought up in Cambridge. That's pure luck. You know, if I was living in rural Scotland, would I have had the same access? I don't know. And and also as well, probably the the other advantage, if you want to call it an advantage, is because I've always been unwell since pretty much three or four weeks of my life starting. Um, I've always been in the hospital like setting, so I've always been at Great Ormond Street. I've always been in the hospital in Cambridge and various ones in London. So, although it's you know it's not pleasant being ill, I think the advantage of being in the system the whole time is that you're kind of monitored. Whereas if you, for example, became ill in your thirties or your forties and had been previously healthy, you know up until that point, would you have the same access and would you know how to navigate the healthcare system and would you know where? all the, not the loopholes, but would you know how to access it properly? Because it is, you know, I've been doing this for 33 years and my parents have helped, my partner and my friends, you know, family, everything, like between us, they've all helped me. And even, I don't know everything by any means. So how would you, how would you like know where to start if you started getting ill? That's, that's the kind of the issue. And you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And it, it's difficult, like, and it changes all the time. And, you know, even just during COVID, for example, I won't dig into COVID, but I think that, during COVID, like that's changed how we access things and lots of services are being scrapped and hard to access. And that's if you know what you're doing. So yeah, it is difficult, you know, accessing things and, you know, genetics testing, I don't know how much it costs, but I'd expect it's quite a lot of money. It's a lot of manpower, uh, time and resources and things. You know, I, I probably went to 12 appointments with the geneticist maybe. Um, and that's just me, that's just one person. So you think about how many people that are trying to get into that um, yeah, it's probably quite a big, a big task. Yeah, and there's also um, a lot of competition um, I've found in the market genetic testing. So there's, we have private enterprises which provide it. Um, if we're lucky, mm-hmm. the NHS in the UK provides it. Um, again, depending on place code lottery, it, it does depend on it. But um, what do you think about the fact that there are private organisations that provide um, either whole genome sequencing or whole exome sequencing, and how reliable or not might they be? I'm kind of impartial to it, really. I think that um, I, I personally wouldn't be able to afford private healthcare, I don't think, um, but there are plenty of people that, that can access that. And to be honest with you, I think it's a good thing because, you know, the from a purely mercenary perspective, like the NHS waiting list for everything is always so long. So if people can afford, you know, people that have, you know, large salaries or they've got family that supports them or things, you know, if they can access it for in a private thing, I've got no problem with that because then, that's one less person that's going to be on an NHS waiting list anyway. So it kind of it benefits everybody, really. You know, they might get seen quicker than you would if you were doing it through the NHS, which I think is quite often what a lot of the time people use private healthcare for um, or private services is because the NHS service, you know, you, you do have to wait so long for it. So, yeah, I, I haven't got a problem with people using it by any means. I, I couldn't vouch for how useful it is because I've never accessed private healthcare. So if that's what you're asking me. <laughs> And what are the positive things that you've gathered or learned through having this ultra rare disease? I mean, I, I can say personally, um, Dave has a great sense of humour. One learns that you have to kind of laugh as often as you can, sometimes at things that might not appear funny to an outsider. But, <laughs> <laughs> but how do you cope with things? And yeah, what have you learned? And what are the type of people you've come across? No, it's a, it's a good question. Obviously, you know me personally outside of this, so... You know, I've got quite a, a dark sense of humour. Mm-hmm. I think that that's 
you know, that's kind of how I deal with it in many ways, because I think that, you know, I've, I've never known what it's like to be healthy. I've always been poorly to some extent, whether it's, you know, being in hospital for weeks or months at a time, or whether it's just sort of like pain at home or fatigue at home. It's all, I've always had some sort of baseline of not being unwell. It's just how unwell and how much, I guess, it interferes. And I think that, you know, I feel like I've thrived in different points of my life. And I think that a lot of people, like especially kind of early 20s, that kind of age of when you're finishing university or whatever it is you're doing, like I found it was a, it was a coincidence as well. Like I was really unwell um, <clears throat> from like second year to third year of university and still did well. My degree still did everything I wanted and, you know, was doing internships, I was working. And then I kind of like when I was trying to sort of start my career off, really, um, my health got like even worse and just really overwhelming fatigue. It was like completely debilitating and obviously didn't realise how um, I think drained I was like physically, but also like mentally, I think I didn't realise that I was quite severely depressed. You know, typical man doesn't, didn't talk about things, didn't acknowledge it. Um, I think, you know, this was, so I'm 33, so obviously like 12 years ago and I was 21, so, you know, mental health wasn't being spoken about as positive as it is now so now if I would have noticed it it would maybe would have been slightly easier because online everyone's talking about it more celebrities talk about it whereas you know 12 years ago in reality it's not that long away but um, people weren't talking about it I didn't I just didn't realize how sort of fed up I was I was very sort of frustrated with everything and I think that that was probably the time where I really like resented my illness probably more so and I didn't I didn't have the same sense of humor I couldn't laugh everything off at that point I think that was when like I really noticed it but then it sounds like cliche but I think actually having that sort of like breakdown or I don't know what word we're going to use to describe it but I think actually having that has helped because it made me sort of rethink slightly what I wanted to do like I wanted to work in finance and that was you know I didn't plan on working in rare disease like I'm being brutally honest it wasn't my you know I don't have a science background it's not something that I probably foresee myself doing but it's probably shaped it because then now, you know, that's what led to me doing, you know, lots of different volunteering and I've been, you know, really privileged to be a part of that. That's led to interesting kind of opportunities from that. And, you know, then then became involved in sort of disability and, and rare disease stuff and, you know, being a trustee for a charity, that's been really cool for me. And, you know, I've met some amazing people like in rare disease, you know, patients like myself or people that are working for charities or people in industry researchers like me, you know yeah i mean i was, I was gonna say that again but you know you keep digging if you want like it's up to you <laughs> hello no thank you. <laughs> no, no, you know it's been it's been great to meet so many people i think that's that's really helped because the the flip side i guess i think um i think i might have said this to you before like actually working in rare disease you'll notice that there's a lot of other people that have rare disease you know like yourself that are working in this space and it's quite common that people gravitate you know from different careers whether it's because you know their child um has a rare disease and then they completely change their career trajectory and do something else and then you know run a patient group or they start working for a farm or something so it's actually really common but I think the, the downside to it if I'm honest sometimes is that you can't escape it because although it's like it's amazing to meet all these people and all different rare diseases different disabilities and sometimes it's the patient sometimes it's the parent or you know sibling or something but you can't escape it because you know even when like even just when I'm talking to you for example like obviously I've known you for a long time but and you're talking about your stuff even though it's not directly me it's still in afterwards I'm still thinking oh like that reminds me of when this 
when that kind of scenario happened to me with my stuff or you know thinking about things with my parents or my sister or like it, it it brings back a lot of stuff so actually you can never escape it it definitely the good definitely way 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 outweighs the bad of it but obviously the the downside is that you are kind of permanently thinking about it and for someone that tries to deal with their health by not thinking about it all the time it's quite hard so it's quite ironic that that's what i'm doing <laughs> Yeah, and I suppose that, though, that's where sometimes the, the dark humour comes in handy. So even if you are talking about, you know, these awful rare diseases, it can kind of lift you up a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I, I would say that um, personally, I think that all the advances in technology and the sciences are really helping us. And even, I mean, here we are speaking on a podcast about precision medicine. This not have happened just like a couple of years ago or whatever would it yeah do you think that, that it's cool that people actually want to learn about it you know people who are not directly or you know if affected they're like what is this stuff because it's pretty interesting would you agree yeah, yeah i mean it is and i think that you know i am um, you know most of my friends i you know my kind of all my sort of best friends are from sort of sixth form and university they're, they're the ones that have uh, you know, stayed around. We've been we've been friends for a long time, and you know they all work in completely different industries. None of them, apart from one, has a sort of slight overlap. But most of them work in IT and all sorts of different things. And you know, I sometimes talk to them about stuff, and they seem really interested by like genetics and like science in general, and just even just like broadly like disability. But I mean, especially like the science stuff, and people have become. And I'm not really asking the question, but people have become more interested in like TED talks about things. So actually, like people are becoming in like different YouTube videos and stuff like that. There's so much information out there and, you know, people, you don't always necessarily have to have a science degree to understand things. But I think TED Talks is a good example because that's kind of made people think about things in like bite-sized chunks. And I think people are in general, I think again, because of COVID, like people were trying to learn more about how COVID works and the vaccines and all the different things that kind of came with COVID. People probably have more of a slight interest now, um, in science and, and medicine and genetics because they've been exposed to it for the last two and a half three years so um I, you know, I i like to try and learn stuff and i think that from from like a personal perspective because i guess this is where like maybe i do feel disgruntled but because I'm, I'm not kind of involved in anything as such i have to try and learn everything because i'm not kind of being exposed to it through my own health so i have to try and learn it and see what other people are doing and you know other people's different treatments and you know, all the genetics things that they're doing, you know, so I am always trying to learn, but, um, you know, I don't come from a science background, so it's every day is a school day, I think. Yeah, no, to I would totally agree that every day is a school day. <laughs> One of my cheesy sayings is that, you know, I, I aim to bridge the gaps between the researchers, clinicians and us lot. Would you say that that is happening more now? Probably what I've noticed on like, uh, like the advocacy side of things is that I've seen lots of kind of good resources from charities and patient groups of like how to communicate to your doctor and like um you know different toolkits to kind of make the most of your appointments and you know try you know people take like glossaries of terms so they can understand things or like a friend of mine's got um a business where she creates like a little thing for people where they can put in all their, their medical information and they just give it to the uh, healthcare professionals that you see and they, they can advocate for themselves and so rather than having to explain like 30 years of medical history they can just see like a an executive overview so there are so many things that are out there now that can and like resources that can help people because it is hard to, to do it and I think the the other side is for the clinicians you know 
I've I've been very lucky that the majority of mine have been good. You know, I haven't had some great ones as well, I'll be honest. And I think that sometimes I feel like angry with them, but in reality, they're busy as well. They've got so many people that they're seeing, they've got their own demands and I'm not their only patient. So sometimes when they're in a rush where you don't feel like you get the most from them, that can be frustrating as well. What what does potentially the, the future hold for rare disease? Not necessarily your own, because <laughs> that, that could be... An episode, another episode all of its own but just rare diseases in general I mean we know they're becoming less rare actually although I know a lot of people don't like to hear that but it's a good thing because more people are being diagnosed as you said in the beginning of our chat um, do you think that that's going to continue in the future do you think like um, conferences such as Precision Medicine Forum you know they contribute what what do you think the future might hold for us um, I think uh, again, kind of bring it back to COVID because it's relevant. I think when COVID started, if you would have asked me this, um, it might have been a different answer. Because I think when when COVID really started to affect everything, um, I think a lot of people, like in the rare disease space, myself included, I think that people were worried that kind of all the funding and, and also I guess like Brexit and things have kind of come into it as well, like um, all the, and, and other big kind of events in the world, like everyone you know funding is precarious for rare diseases it is and you know like you say it's it's rare but collectively it's not rare so like individual diseases can be rare but actually like collectively i think if you i think it's if i've got the stat right i think if you put everyone living with a rare disease like globally together <clears throat> it'd be like the third biggest population country so that tells you that it's not rare collectively but individually they are so you know everyone coming together and people getting you know quicker diagnosis and it's always a positive thing because you know online communities have helped because that's how a lot of the time people have known what to look for and people have become you know people that kind of self-diagnosing start with and then getting the information they recognize from other people that has actually led to their own diagnosis so actually like online communities are very powerful i think that um i see like pharma companies now have a lot more people doing kind of patient engagement roles you know even when I started working in this space or like four four and a bit years ago I'm convinced there wasn't as many people uh, I might have been naive to that but I'm convinced there's more people now working kind of in patient engagement and patient advocacy so yeah it seems to be a growing space I do think pharma are trying to listen um to, to patients and trying to be more involved obviously there's different like legal aspects of how they can interact with patients but um like broadly um, this isn't for me because I'm not really involved, but like broadly for other people that maybe have more interaction with, with pharma companies and, and research, I, I do think there's a as a positive shift. I think there's still a lot more can be done. I'm not giving them 10 out of 10, but um, I do think that, that you know, broadly they're, they're getting better at realising that they can do more to help patients. It's not just a tick box. Uh, yeah, and actually that's a really good note to finish on. It's not just a tick box. It's often not just one sole diagnosis actually because comorbidities especially psychiatric are really common too and so we need to look at the, the whole picture I think of the patient and the family. The second thing you just said is probably even more important is that like so often the family get missed out of things you know broadly in, in rare disease like the family is, is a big talking point now like especially sort of siblings and things so um, that's something that I'm kind of quite keen to discuss with other people. So, yeah, I think the family is a, is a good point as well. Well, thank you so much for giving us personal insight, Dave. It's been fantastic. If people want to get hold of you, where do they go? What do they do? Uh, you can connect on, on LinkedIn. So it's David Edward Rose, R-O-S-E. Um, or Instagram is um, Occipital Horn Advocate. Um, that's me. Thanks, Dave. I, I just want to um, 
come back to your point about the um, your friend who you said had this toolkit almost to give to people. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of a meme that I saw once, maybe on LinkedIn or whatever it was. I can't remember it, but, but it was a meme of a conversation between a clinician and a patient, and the clinician saying to the patient, "You know, please don't mistake Doctor Google for my seven years at medical school." And the patient's retort was, please don't uh, mistake your, your one hour at medical school for my 30 years living with this condition. Um, and, and that kind of sort of feeds into that idea, doesn't it, of a patient going to a clinician with, you know, the glossary terms that you said and, uh, you know, an idea of, you know, what they're living with, really. People are, have different ways of dealing with doctors and things, but I think that, um, it, like, I think probably broadly we're quite lucky in the UK really I don't know if Tory's got a differing opinion, but broadly speaking, not too bad. But I think in other countries and, and other places, it's a bit, yeah, I think if it's not in rare disease, it's a lot more rushed. I feel like there's a slight bias towards people that have unusual conditions, but it's not perfect. But I, I do feel like the kind of non-rare disease people sometimes get a slight crappy deal out of things. And a lot can depend upon also if a the individual question the patient has the intellectual capacity to ask the questions because lots of us don't um and so really that's another reason that we need to encourage clinicians to be more open some people but some of them are absolutely absolutely fantastic you know yeah that's true thank you ever so much both of you um david for your frank and, and and honest um insight into your life basically, and, and, and the amazing work that you do for charities um, and obviously at Rare Revolution magazine. Um, anyone check out Rare Revolution. Um, it's a good mag and you do some really good stuff. And what's more, the people are really nice there. Um, I've, I've spoken to Rebecca quite a lot. Um, and Tori, please throw in a plug at the end now, will you, for your podcast and all your work? Thank you. Okay, yeah, so if anybody wants to check out my podcast, it's Epilepsy Sparks Insights. Um, Like this one, we release um, an episode every week, every Thursday, and it's where I interview um, clinicians and researchers when it comes to the epilepsies and comorbidities, primarily um, psychiatric ones. And you can check out the website, um, epilepsysparks.com, and my own one, um, toryrobinson.com, and it's also available on YouTube. So whichever you fancy, um, and come and find me on social media platforms, I'm kind of there as is epilepsy sparks marvelous that was precision medicine forum podcast visit precisionmedicineforum.com to get all the show resources and find out about our upcoming episodes and events and please subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode